0: From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi there, is the mayor in? I'm Marissa Lang with The Washington Post. Hey, it's Darcy. I want to pick your brain on the truck. Hi, my name is Jenna Johnson. I'm a political. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Friday, July 16th. Today, grief and learning to cook Korean food with Michelle Zahner. Plus, what happens when a head of state gets a really bad case of the hiccups?
1: I'll cry when I see a Korean grandmother eating seafood noodles in the food court, discarding shrimp heads and mussel shells onto the lid of her daughter's tin rice bowl. Her gray hair frizzy, cheekbones protruding like the tops of two peaches, tattooed eyebrows rusting as the ink fades out.
0: Michelle Zahner is the lead singer of the band Japanese Breakfast. She's now also the author of the best-selling memoir, Crying in H-Mart. The book talks about Michelle's journey through grief when her mother was diagnosed with cancer. Trips to the Asian grocery store H-Mart became this way for her to explore her connection with her mom and with her Korean heritage. Post Reports editor and producer Alexis Diao spoke with Michelle about the process of writing her memoir and what it means to be an Asian-American musician and author today.
2: Michelle, I have to say, first of all, congratulations on this book. It is so good. I feel like I've been waiting for a book like this for a very long time. Thank you for putting it into the world. Well, thank you for reading it. I'm hoping you can read a passage from, from the beginning of the book.
1: I'll wonder what my mom would have looked like in her 70s if she'd have wound up with the same perm that every Korean grandma gets as though it was a part of our race's evolution. I'll imagine our arms linked, her small frame leaning against mine as we take the escalator up to the food court. The two of us in all black, New York style, she'd say, her image of New York still rooted in the era of Breakfast at Tiffany's. She would carry the quilted leather Chanel purse that she'd wanted her whole life, instead of the fake ones she bought on the back streets of Itaewon. Her hands and face would be slightly sticky from QVC anti-aging creams. She'd wear some strange high-top sneaker wedges that I'd disagree with. Michelle, in Korea, every celebrity wears this one. She'd pluck the lint off my coat and pick on me. How my shoulders slumped, how I needed new shoes, how I should really start using that argan oil treatment she bought me. But we'd be together. If I'm being honest, there's a lot of anger. I'm angry at this old Korean woman I don't know, that she gets to live and my mother does not. Like somehow this stranger's survival is at all related to my loss. That someone my mother's age could still have a mother. Why is she here slurping up spicy jjampong noodles and my mom isn't? Other people must feel this way. Life is unfair and sometimes it helps to irrationally blame someone for it.
2: I'm curious, how did you settle on the name Crying in H Mart? The title came to me
1: pretty early. I had started probably 2015. It was the second Christmas without my mother. And I had lunch at the Elkins Park H Mart. And I remember starting to feel this way and observe people and envy them and also feel close to them in a way. And I just wrote from a very honest place about that
2: experience. When you wrote this book, I imagine you would have to immerse yourself in a lot of those moments and those feelings of your experience. Was that helpful in your process of grief or was it kind of like re-traumatizing over and over again?
1: I think it was both, honestly. It certainly was re-traumatizing, but I think personally, there is a part of me that is tempted to poke at this wound, maybe to constantly acknowledge that it's real. And I think that sometimes re-experiencing that type of agony makes me feel closer to the person that I loved so much. makes me recognize how real my affection for this person was. And Also, I mean, I think that one thing that's really incredible about writing a memoir is that you have to really place yourself in everyone that you write about and all of the players involved. And I feel in doing so, I was able to really understand where the people in my life were coming from better. I was able to forgive them and myself and it was a really important experience for me.
2: A lot of your experience that you write about in your book centers on food as a love language, as a way to, you know, take care of your mother, but also as a way to connect with her and connect with your culture. How did you decide to put food and your learning to cook Korean food at the center of your, of your book and your experience?
1: You know, everyone has that sort of connection with their family. There are dishes that are passed down and things that mom makes that no one else does. But I think that there were also a lot of other more complicated reasons why I used food as this major vehicle because part of it was this almost psychological undoing of the failures that I felt as a caretaker, not knowing the dishes my Korean mother needed to eat during her illness. And there was also this real fear of losing that part of my culture. Once my mom died, being mixed race and using Korean cooking as a way to kind of preserve my connection to my heritage that suddenly felt at risk.
2: I'm curious about if you had conversations when you're writing this book and you're writing about Korean food and culture and traditions, if there were conversations about like how much to explain certain things like banchan or Tuk or something like that. Yeah, that's a
1: great question. I tried to approach it without thinking that a white American person unfamiliar with this type of food was not my general audience. I knew that a lot of Korean people would probably read this book because as a Korean person, every time there's a book written by a Korean American author, I am probably first in line to read it. And so I wanted to kind of like if I was at a table, at a diverse table, talk about these things. In a way where if you're interested and you want to know more about it, you can look it up and take the time to do it. It's a quick aside for those of you who know it. You don't. It's easy to skim over. And for those of you who don't, if it's something that you're interested in learning more about that isn't essential to the story, you can have a wonderful time looking it up and learning more about it. It was really important for me to not include footnotes or italics, because I feel like it whenever I see that in a book, it feels like it's really exoticizing something in this way that it should be normalized. I guess.
2: You write about this a little bit in your book about how, you know, in Asian cultures, there's this expectation or sometimes just perception of being stoic and reserved. And I felt like reading your book, it was kind of a rejection of that. And was that going through your mind as you were writing this kind of intentional push against those cultural expectations? I mean, it's hard to say because
1: I feel like my entire life and personality could very well be a rejection of those kinds of stereotypes. I've always felt, I mean, or it could just be that, you know, I grew up American. I'm half white. I have all of the entitlement that comes with being American, for better or for worse. My father is such an oversharer and I am also kind of that way. And it was always really perplexing and enchanting, but endlessly frustrating that my mom was much more withholding and stoic. And there was part of me that wanted to be that way, but also knew I could never be that way. (laughs) Um, so yeah, I think that I, I certainly thought of my mother a lot, what she would have not wanted shared. And if I was crossing a line or bringing shame to her memory, but it was also really in conflict of those being the greatest, most human parts of what makes a story is is that kind of stuff. And the kind of art that I really love tends to really go there. So I was thinking a lot about those two things being at odds with one another. And it was certainly a careful balance
2: during the writing process. There's a moment when you write, you know, you considered even making a documentary about going to Korea with your family while your mother was ill. And you write, It was my instinct to document, to co-opt something so vulnerable and personal and tragic for creative artifact. And then you decided not to. Did you have a similar internal debate when writing this book? I think that that
1: sentiment was more about in the process of her dying. I even still felt like I should write all of this down And then putting that away and feeling a real shame about that was a way of me recognizing, I guess, my flaws or that was a really important thing for me to put in the book. You know, it's really hard (laughs) to expose your own flaws, but it's so essential in memoir when if you're going to throw other players under the bus, like, you have to be willing to figure out what you did wrong too and that was a moment for me where i i felt like some reveal of my hand and my flaws that i do have this instinct and i felt really embarrassed about it at the time but it was mostly because we had such a limited time together and i needed to remind myself to just be present not now not this but all art making for me has really been about processing things that have happened. And, and so it wasn't as much of a concern. I, and I think for me, too, the whole book is a real love letter to my mom and our relationship. And, and it felt like a memorial to her in a way.
2: I feel like there are so many books that are coming out about Asian Americans and the Asian American experience. It's a renaissance in a lot of ways. Absolutely. I mean,
1: I remember being younger and definitely never seeing an Asian person in a movie or in a book or in the music scene. There was like one person. Now it, it feels like there's a real wealth of artistic riches that we can interact with. And there's all very different types of stories that are coming out. And it's really exciting. I, I definitely did not feel this way growing up.
2: I want to talk about music because you have a band you're a musician and I love how you connected this you know all throughout your book and especially when you talked about the first time that you saw the yeah, yeah yeahs and Karen O oh on stage being outrageous say, 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 and being this Asian woman fronting a band and like shoving a mic into her mouth <laughs> And thinking like, oh my God, dear Lord, this woman is amazing. Also, she looks like me and she's on stage. I'm curious how how in your musical career and identity, like how you overcame the sense of kind of staking out your own place and that own sense of like, I got this.
1: Oh, I mean, I feel like I'm still experiencing that all the time. I think it's an ever changing experience where you're always looking for your place in the world and I mean it was just something that I loved to do and constantly had to confront feelings of imposter syndrome and doubt and it's an ongoing battle I think I'm still (laughs) struggling with that feeling.
2: You have a new album that came out this summer, Jubilee, it's your third studio album from Japanese Breakfast. The title is like the exact opposite of Crying at H Mart. (laughs) Tell, Tell me
1: about this new album. Well, it's funny because this album was actually supposed to come out before the book, but we pushed it a year later because of the pandemic. And it actually, I think makes much more sense having it come out now after Crying in H-Mart, because I think for me, Crying in H-Mart sort of felt like I had said everything I needed to say about grief and loss. The two records that I had before that were also largely about my mother's death. And so I felt like I had unpacked everything that needed to be investigated and it was time to move on. And the most unexpected thing for me as an artist felt like tackling this album about joy. And I think in some way, all of the songs are about giving myself permission to feel joy after the last six years of grieving and struggling to feel joy again, relearning how to experience joy. They're all different ways of interacting with joy in some way. I think my favorite track on the record is Kokomo, Indiana. Because I feel like I unlocked something new, compositionally, in writing that song. And it's also some of my favorite lyrics. And it's just a sweet song. I didn't have to excavate any trauma or, you know, it made me realize that you don't have to have real tragedy in music in order for it to be powerful.
0: Michelle Zahner is the lead singer of Japanese Breakfast and the author of Crying in H Mart. She was interviewed by Post Reports editor Alexis Diao. Ariel Plotnick produced this story. Now, one more thing about Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro.
3: Jair Bolsonaro has been hospitalized. — Logo depois, nós iremos para Caxias, no Rio Grande do Sul. Um dos eventos importantes lá, iremos a… — Seeking treatment He's after a... 10 da days straight of hiccups. — E por já ter conseguido tirar oh. da prancheta Sammy Westfall
0: is an intern with the Foreign Desk at The Post. She spoke with our intern, Corey Suzuki. He had 10 straight days of hiccups?
3: Yeah, I actually spoke with a gastroenterologist, and even more than one day of straight hiccups is quite rare. I mean, everyone sort of experiences pretty transient hiccups, which are involuntary contractions of the diaphragm, and, you know, your vocal cords close, and that creates the hiccup sound. But anything more than two days, doctors... Basically, say you should try to seek treatment at that point.
0: There's this one specific video of President Bolsonaro from July 8th. Can you just sort of narrate what it shows?
3: Yeah, so he actually posts many different Facebook live streams, and in one of them from July 8, I actually counted he hiccuped 14 times within his first minute of speaking. You can see him sort of talk and then he'll sometimes stop or close his eyes and then just pause and then recollect himself and get back to speaking. But, I mean, it goes on for an hour and the the hiccups don't really stop. And that's just one video from one of the 10 days that he's been having these persistent hiccups.
0: So do we know what's actually behind Bolsonaro's hiccups?
3: So the thing about hiccups is they can be caused by a lot of different things, something as small as eating too fast or even stress, or bigger things that are more serious like a tumor, for example. He underwent different examinations and they found intestinal obstruction. And in a recent tweet, he's tying this incident to an encounter that he had on the 2018 campaign trail where he was actually stabbed in the abdomen. He lost a lot of blood. He suffered a serious wound. And afterwards, he underwent several operations. So he mentioned that again in a tweet. And posted a photo of himself shirtless with his eyes closed in a hospital bed wired up with sensors and cables. And he tweeted, we'll be back soon. God willing, Brazil is ours in Portuguese.
0: And more recently, Bolsonaro has had other health scares, right?
3: Yeah, Bolsonaro has actually gone through a run of different health scares other than the stabbing incident in 2018. He also contracted COVID last July after playing down the coronavirus for months. This wasn't life-threatening, but while he was in quarantine for that COVID case, he was bitten by this emu-like giant bird in the presidential palace, and he's had a stubborn cough since he had COVID as well.
0: Where do you think stand now with President Bolsonaro's health?
3: So there were initial worries that he would have to undergo some sort of emergency surgical procedure. But instead, doctors are saying he's going to undergo what is called a conservative treatment with things like medication. A lot of people have been watching Bolsonaro during the pandemic. Brazil has been one of the worst hit nations, passing 500,000 deaths last month. And this incident just
0: serves to put more eyes on him. Sammy Westfall is an intern on the Foreign Desk at The Post. The story was produced by Corey Suzuki. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Maggie Penman. She is our executive producer. Our senior producer is Rena Flores. Our editors are Alexis Diao and Ted Muldoon, who also composed our theme music. Our producers are Lena Mohammed and Jordan Ray Smith. Ariel Plotnick and Renny Svrnovsky are associate producers. Sabi Robinson and Emma Talkoff are assistant producers. Our intern is Corey Suzuki. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back on Monday with more stories from The Washington Post.